Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, people, uh, remember when I got that Fitbit a while ago? I was so into it. I remember I was doing my 10,000 steps every day, and I just couldn't stop, and I was in shape, and I was, yeah, I still eat healthy, but I I've just gotten lazy. I do like 5,000 steps or maybe 7,000. Actually, last week, one day, I don't know what happened. I did like 1,400 steps and Joanne does like 10 or 15,000 every day. But what I noticed is, you know, because I don't really go out and drink anymore and I just, I eat healthy. I weighed myself this morning and I weigh exactly the same as when I did when I took all those steps. But the only difference is I feel like I'm getting a little uh, thicker in my little belly. So I have to stop that. So I'm going to start exercising again. And I haven't been to the gym. And there's this real nice old guy. And he's from New Jersey like me. And he always would ask, you know, we'd always talk for a little bit. And now he always asks jo- Joanne where I am. And she's like, she says, oh, he's out of town because she doesn't want to be embarrassed that her boyfriend won't work out. Anyway, we have a uh, great guest today. And uh, I want to put pro- I didn't ask you how to pronounce it right. It's Fred Melamed. Exactly right. Okay, because it's always so funny because I, I grew up back east and, and you're, you're from – you grew up in New York. Yeah, yeah. So I always was taught – I had my friend Mark Esposito and his mother, we'd always talk about Italians because they were very Italian. And she said, just pronounce it exactly how it looks. And your name looks M-E-L Mel Ahmed. So there you go. Well, I mean, I'm I'm grateful that you pronounced it that way because most people, uh, or many people anyway, say Malamed because it's an actual actually it's a word in Hebrew and in Arabic. It means teacher, and the word is Malamed. But my family, uh, the, the part of my family with the name uh, was Sephardic, and they say Melamed for some reason. Or anyway, the guy at Ellis Island thought it should be Melamed, so that's how we all say it. Isn't Ellis? It's so funny because my my uh, my mom's parents came through they uh their name was haversack but they changed it to lava check which is lava check is much nicer than haversack because that sort of almost sounds like obscene i mean i hate to go to school being haversack <laughs> well you grew up in new york i did and now you were adopted yes okay now uh as a baby or what age at what age no it was as soon as i could uh it was as, i was two days old when i was adopted uh which is a which is a, a kind of interesting story in itself um, about the, the you know the early period of my life, I was born in New York City. Uh, my father, my father uh, was a television producer. He worked with a guy called Nat Hyken on very early television shows. Uh, there was a show called Car Fifty Four, Where Are You? That you might remember. He did that, and Sergeant Bilko, which was Phil Silvers, and some other shows of that era. And my mother uh, was kind of like a wannabe actress, uh, hung out in it for a while, but was mostly a housewife. But uh, they were married in 46, right after the war, and they were not able to have children. Uh, and so they adopted me in 56, 10 years later. Now, when I was, I'm now 59. When I was 27, uh, I should preface this by saying, I always knew that I was adopted. My parents told me that I was adopted. The, the, the thinking was when I was growing up that you'd tell a child, uh, immediately when he can talk, which I, which my parents did. And I was interested, I was curious about it, but I never had the kind of overwhelming desire to find my birth parents that some people do. Um, anyway, when I was 27, uh, I used to play cards a lot. I was, I used to play poker and I used to play, you know, several nights a week. And one day I came home and there was this answer on my answering machine. And this is the days when people still had answering machines. Remember that? It was such a great yes. time. You push it. Oh, my God, it's blinking. Let's push it. Right. So there was this answer. And it was a woman's voice, kind of tremulous voice. So I was a little suspicious. She said, my name is Nancy. Please call me at this number in California. Of course, I was living in New York at the time. So I thought, well, maybe it's about a job or something. She said, you can call late. So I dialed this number. And she said, you know that you're adopted. And I said, Yes. She said, well, I'm your birth mother. I'm your biological mother. So we talked for about four hours or three hours that night all about the circumstances of my nativity and my adoption and the whole, all that stuff, who, who she was, who my father was, who, who I was, and my parents that had raised me. Uh, and it turned out, strangely, that she was a, an actress and filmmaker. Wow. And we had many, many people that we knew in common and our paths had crossed many times. There was a theater. When I first got out of drama school in 1981, I went to a theater in, in Minnesota called the Guthrie in Minneapolis for uh, a part of the season. And there was a, a guy there called John Lewin, an actor there that I had befriended. Her, and she had also been there and, and been his girlfriend for a while. And uh, we had many, many strange um, things in common. So... Um, 
she said, I'm going to come to New York in a couple of weeks. Would you like to meet? So we did. We met. And I remember very distinctly going into this hotel, going into the lobby of the Regency Hotel, actually the bar of the Regency Hotel, holding a big um, cigar box full of photographs of myself as a child and my sister and my parents and all that stuff. She had a big box of photographs too, and we talked. And it's a very, it's a strange experience because you, you feel... There's no question. You know that you're connected in some deep way. I talk like her. I not only look like her, but I talk like her. I sort of gesticulated like her. And yet uh, I didn't quite know how to relate to her. And there's no there's no correlative at any other time in your life. There's nothing you can compare it to. It's a strange, strange feeling. And I remember um, she said to me, <clears throat> it got late. It was maybe 10 o'clock at night. She said, I'd like to get something to eat. Is there a place we can go to get a, you know, just a hamburger? So at the time, New York was dotted with these, these, this chain of burger places called Jackson Hole. So we went to this Jackson Hole a few blocks away, and we're sitting there, and she had on this beautiful white silk blouse, and she took a bite of this hamburger and about a quart, well, not a quart, about a <laughs> cup of ketchup came squirting out of the bottom of this thing all over this beautiful silk blouse. And I knew at that moment, if I had any doubt, any remnants of doubt, <laughs> that she was my mother, they were gone in that second. Are you, are you a sloppy eater? Uh, <laughs> I, I should probably eat in the shower. That's how sloppy of an eater I am. So, okay, so your, your, your biological mother was an actress. Right. And the father who raised you was in TV. Right. Is that, do you think, is that why you gravitated towards TV or what age did you know that you wanted to get into acting? Was it as a small child, you watched TV and said, I want to do that? Or how did you come to that decision to follow this? No, I, 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 I was interested. I liked cartoons when I was a kid and I, and I said, I used to say for a while that I wanted to be an animation director when I was, you know, nine or 10 years old, I you know, but I grew up out of that. And then I became interested when I was, you know, when I hit puberty, I became interested in, um, old things. I became interested in archaeology. Um, and I, for a while I wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, and I'm not very good around heat. So it's a good thing that I didn't pursue that. <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, you know, Burbank, California is probably just about the, the, the upper limit of what I can take in terms of, you know, being outside in the heat. Uh, but I was interested in archaeology. And then when I got I, in, in high school, I had, I, I, for fun, I did plays, you know, just for fun. And I had a friend that was a couple of years older than me, and he directed me in plays in high school. And then he went to college, and I went to the, I went to the same college that he did. We went to, both went to Hampshire College, which is kind of hippie, wild college in Massachusetts. And they allowed you to do whatever you wanted. The the the, the, the requirements in those days they've they've toughened up somewhat uh, since then. But in those days, you could essentially do whatever you wanted. And so this friend of mine, a guy named Andy Shea, uh, wrote and directed plays. And so I kept being in his plays. He kept asking me, you know, do you want to do another play? And then some other people, uh, you know, saw them and asked me to be in their plays. And I just did this because I enjoyed it. Never at all considering the possibility of doing it as a profession. I just thought I was having a good time and, you know, doing something in school that was a, something I could say I was doing in school. And then the last year that I was there, the last year that I was at Hampshire, um, these two women came to Smith College, which is one of the other colleges in the area, uh, a woman called Tina Packer and a woman called Kristen Linklater, both kind of uh, firebrands, very fierce, interesting uh, voices in theater. And Tina had started this company called Shakespeare and Company, which was a company of people, all pan-English-speaking company, people from Africa, from Britain, from America, from Canada, uh, all English-speaking, but from all over the world. So she asked me to join that company, which I did briefly. Uh, and then I started to take it very seriously. And then I thought, well, I really have to train more. So I said, well, I'll just apply to one drama school. And if I get in, I'll go. If not, I'll just try and start. So I got into And I went, applied and got into Yale Drama School. It's a pretty good school to get into. I mean, when, you, when you apply for one, I mean, you're setting your standards very high, which is well, great. But you got in. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I was very – I was no, no doubt about it. I was very lucky, very fortunate. And also I – I, um, you know, I was, I had, I had, I was serious about it. I was really serious about it by that point. So, um, I went to Yale, which was three years. And by the way, I have a lot of friends from that time from Yale who are still my friends, some of whom moved out here, 
uh, like 30 years ago or 25 years ago. And I'm, I'm having to now, I've only moved here in the last two and a half years, my wife and kids and I. So we're, I'm now having to try and reinsinuate myself into these f- bunches of friends that are from California now for years and years, which I'm, which I'm actually enjoying. I want to talk about your career, but what, what, what made you move out here? What was the, uh, what, cause that's, I mean, I've used, you've had a very successful career and with the voice and acting, but what eventually made you to move out? And I think, you know, I mean, I'm from back east, and once you're out here, you're like, oh, I don't want to go back. I mean, you go back and visit, but you moved out later in life. What made you decide to move out later in life? Well, I have. we have two sons, my wife and me. Uh, uh, they're twins, uh, and they were both born with autism, although one much more seriously than the other, one much more profoundly than the other. In fact, one of the sons uh, uh, no longer shows really any signs of having autism at all. It's uh, remarkable. But the other son is still rather seriously affected. So we had our kids in a school out there in which they really thrived. They did wonderfully. A school out there called the Child Development Center of the Hamptons, which is uh, uh, in Bridgehampton. Um, but unfortunately, that school only goes to fifth grade. Okay. So the alternatives for this son, this particular son of mine, uh, with quite serious autism, were not were not good out there. Uh, so we would have had to move someplace, you know, we would have to move to, I didn't, with children with that kind of, uh, those kind of issues, I didn't want to move, live in the city. Uh, we could have maybe moved to Connecticut or New Jersey or some other place. Meanwhile, I was coming out here, you know, a couple of times a year or more for work of one kind or another. And that year I happened to have gotten a pilot, a Fox pilot. So I came out here to do the pilot. I said to my wife, listen, you know, we should really seriously consider California. So when I'm doing this pilot, come out with me and we'll look around and we'll see if we can find a really good school for Alec. That's our son. And we'll see if we can find a house or neighborhood that we like. And we'll, you know, and, and we'll, we'll do it if we, if you like it. So she did. And we did in fact find a neighborhood that we really liked where we now live. And, uh, we found a school and, uh, we, that was in March of 2013. And by the end of May, 2013, we had moved here. Okay. So that's good. It was a good move. It was, it was productive. And, and it was, but I have to say, I approached it with total terror. I, I am the type of person who never changes any, you know, I don't change agents or my underwear or anything <laughs> <laughs> until it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I, I, I don't approach change with a great deal of, uh, most change with a great deal of uh, optimism or uh, confidence. So um, I was not, I, I was, I, I saw that it could be very good, but I certainly wasn't sure about it. And I certainly approached it with a lot of anxiety well it is it is a scary move i mean my girlfriend just moved out here a year and a half ago and she was i'm 51 she's 48 she's lived in new jersey her whole life well she was born in staten island but she was you know lived in jersey and it's a it's a scary move for one i mean but then also but she you know if she comes out and if it didn't work out she could move back but when you're bringing a family out it's it's a scary move, but it sounds like it worked out good. It did. It was great, and I was, uh, you know, there, there were there were some complications to it. We got out here, we found the school, uh, but it turned. But I didn't kind of realize the situation with public schools out here. That you know, the public education system in L.A. is very very overstressed and overtaxed, and because of various things that certain governors did, the tax base has changed, and they're broke. Uh, it's the only place in the country I know of that doesn't bus children to school. You know, it's funny. And that's funny. We were talking about, I live in Burbank and it was funny because there's always tons of kids like just walking after like, you know, if you go on Burbank high, I always shop at this place sprouts and I go, Oh, I can't go at two thirty or quarter three. Cause there's tons of kids for us. I mean, I took, I walked to elementary school, but I bust to high school. The kids were all just walking to the bus, but I, you're, that's weird. You're right. I don't. I don't see school buses much out here. Yeah. The, the only uh, if you have if you if you qualify for special education or there are certain other circumstances in which you can get it. But for average children, no, everybody uh, has to be schlepped to school by their parents or by somebody else. So uh, I say that only to indicate the kind of difficult financial situation that public schools are in. So when we moved here, our son Alec was uh, not immediately allowed by uh, the uh, LAUSD uh, to be sent to the school that we wanted him to go to because it would have cost them a lot of money. So they kept him initially in, a, in an autism program um, at a school where he really wasn't doing well. So we had to, uh, we had to uh, uh, hire an attorney and all that. And, I, and without going into the details of the settlement, we wound up being able to get him into a school that was better suited to his needs. So that was very good, but it took some doing. Um, work-wise, it's been wonderful. Uh, much to my um, 
I don't want to say amazement, but uh, much to my <laughs> much to my uh, surprise and pleasant surprise, I've been greeted extremely warmly out here, uh, uh, which has been great and um, uh, really really enjoying living here. And, and had got many interesting projects, both in television and film, to work on since I arrived. And it's only been a little over two years. See, that's great. But you've also been in the business for a while, because when you graduated Yale, mm-hmm. you started, you went to New York and started doing a lot of stage work, right? Yeah. Initially, when I first got out in 81, I got a job right away at the theater, the Guthrie. And then very shortly after that, I got a part in Amadeus, the, the original American production of Amadeus on Broadway, first a tour and then on Broadway. Uh, and that had a very... I had a, a strange uh, experience with that. I, I had um, uh, a terrible problem with stage fright. I mean, even though you even though you were trained and you had been in school and you've been in plays for a very very long time, you still ha- you were afraid to go on stage. Yeah, something happened to me, and I can't tell you exactly why. But something, and by the way, it, it happens to other people. It hap- I, ha- I have a, a, a friend who's a very, very well-known actor uh, in New York uh, to whom the same thing, a similar thing happened. And Laurence Olivier talks about it in his book. He had this long period where, uh, not <laughs> it may be the only grounds on which I can rightly compare myself to Laurence Olivier. <laughs> um, but um, for some reason, uh, I, during the run of that play, which was a long run, it was about 16 months, about halfway through it, I began to get stage fright so severe that it took every ounce of courage and discipline that I had just to sort of get through it. And I felt horrible about it because it was taking so much of me to just get myself to do it that I kind of felt like I was cheating the audience. You know, that it's a great work, which I admired very much, but I kind of didn't feel I was doing great in it because it was so hard to just do it. Uh, and I thought, I've made this horrible mistake. You know, I said, I'll, I'm going to be an actor. And, you know, people said, oh, don't be an actor. It's so hard. And I said, oh, I'll show you. I went to Yale Drama School and I had this Broadway gig, which among, for my contemporaries, that was a big deal. Oh, yeah, it's Broadway. I was a young guy. I was like 27 or something. I don't something like that, 27, 28. And, you know, I have a Broadway show. And meanwhile, I couldn't stand doing this eight show week. So when that ended, which, as I say, took 16 months, I thought, I, I don't want to ever set foot on stage again. I just don't. This is awful. And meanwhile, I had an agent that was very big in voiceovers, had a lot of voiceover clients. And I said, well, okay, so uh, would you mind representing me for voiceovers? And at first he wasn't too uh, enthusiastic. He said, you know, they don't want voices that are sonorous voices. They want voices that that cut through. So I said, well, just try me out. So he did. And uh, I got a couple of very big things kind of out of the gate. I got Conoco Oil, which at the time was a big oil company, and then I got Mercedes-Benz shortly after that. So, uh, you know, and and was making, a, by relative standards, a very, very good living. Uh, and I wasn't extremely anxious to, <laughs> to go back <laughs> to the theater. And I had a couple of people in movies uh, that liked me. There was a casting director, a wonderful casting director named Juliet Taylor, who cast all Woody Allen's movies. Another guy, Howard Feuer, now now gone, but some other casters liked me, uh, and they would just offer me things. I wouldn't audition. They would just say, "Do you want to do? You know, it's a psychiatrist and Woody's movie. It's three days a week." Isn't isn't that amazing? It's like it's so funny how things happen like that. So for one, you know, you have the stage fright, and you're like, and you, you you wanted to be an actor, and you trained for it, and then you have the stage fright, and sit, and sit there and go, "Okay, I can't. I'm not going to do stage." And then these doors open, which is still acting. I mean, that, that's, that must be, a, it must have been a very easy transition for you. Well, I mean, I, it, it wasn't easy because I felt kind of, I got my, I got my ass kicked by something that I had set out to do, but it was, I, I was, I felt like it was sort of an escape hatch that was a very, very well padded, comfortable escape hatch. Right. <laughs> uh, and it was very nice. And as a young guy, single without any responsibilities, you know, I was making a lot of money and uh, I had a relatively pleasant work life. It wasn't deeply fulfilling in an artistic sense, uh, and I was—I got my needs of that kind met by writing. I always was writing and stuff, um, but uh, it was okay. Uh, and it went on for a long, long time that way. I went and I—you know—I did tons and tons of voice stuff. I, I ultimately, I became the voice of CBS Sports, which meant uh, doing everything that CBS, every show that CBS Sports had, every promo, every every, every show open, everything. 
which went on for like seven years. How does that happen? I mean, because it, it's such a it's such a big job, and it's a sports department. I mean, you know, it's you know the NFL and all that stuff. How, was there a long audition process, or did someone know you, or were you sitting there? Was it a lot? Because you had done a few car, you've done the cars, and you've done some other things, so they know your voice. You're you're an established voice actor, but then for this, it's such a big campaign and as you said you're doing everything for the sports was it a long process to get that job or was it very quick well what happened was as as often happens in most of these situations was they had another guy and the other guy either they were not happy with or he was sick or he couldn't do something i can't remember what exactly happened but uh they they auditioned they they went to the same agent that was this guy's agent that they had been using, which happened to also be my agent, and they asked to they asked this agent to submit other people. So I auditioned with some material that they had, and they kind of try you out on a trial basis. They see how they like you, they see how they like working with you, they see how you sound. And it so happened that that year, which was 1990, it was 1997, but in 98, January of 98, uh, CBS had the Olympics, the Nagano Winter Olympics. So they chose me to do, to do the Olympics, uh, and this was another trial by fire because uh, I had a, as you see how messed up I am, I had a very severe phobia about flying. Okay. So powerful. You know what, I had I used to have the same thing, and this is no lie, and I noticed I used to be terrified. I don't know why, and then when I said, when I started dating my girlfriend, I, I, had to, I flew back once a month, and I finally figured it out in my head, I think why I was always terrified was, it wasn't always because of crashing, you know, I, that's, I thought it was, but I always thought it was like, what if I get to the airport and I forget something? And then I finally put it into my head. I go, okay, if I forget a pair of socks, I'm not going to like a rainforest where there's no malls. Your <laughs> yeah, jersey can, is loaded with yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. I can go get socks. <laughs> and after that, it came almost because I was doing it so much. I mean, I, I flew probably back east in, in a two years, a year and a half, like 22 times. And I got so used to it. That I just I just had clothes back there, and I would just take my this bag, my Mercer, my laptop, and the jacket I had, and I would just get on a plane. And it was amazing after like being so terrified that once I started doing it, I went, "Wow, this is great!" I looked forward to it. I had a very similar experience. It's weird. I was so scared of it that I stopped doing it. I didn't get on a plane for over 20 years. I ne- never did I fly. <clears throat> and like my girlfriend and I would go, who's now my wife. We would go for vacations. We'd have to go to like Disney World, stuff that was you could get to by train or by car, you know. And that's such a pain. It takes so much time. Oh, yeah. And you're exhausted when you get there. <laughs> you have three days to get to, you know, feel normal again. Anyway, um, I was the same way. And then I got this job to do the Olympics. And it was six weeks in, in Japan, living in Japan. And my agent said to me, Fred, you have to do this. This is a million dollars in a bag. You just have to go get the bag. So... I said, what am I going to do? And my wife at the time, who was, we were not yet married, was the director of uh, printed print production for Lord & Taylor, all the, all the various Lord & Taylor stores, which meant like all the, all the newspaper ads and mailers and all that stuff were all her responsibility. So she said, listen, I'll fly with you from New York to Japan. I can't stay in Japan because I have to work. So I'll fly back to New York. And then I'll work for the month or four, five weeks, six weeks, whatever it is that you're there. And then when the time comes for you to come back, I'll fly back to Japan. That's a good woman. That is a one hell of a woman because most people be like, yeah, just get on the plane. You know, that's see, that's that's yeah, a wonderful that, woman. That that, that uh, was a, a big uh, that that led to an engagement ring. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I felt that way too. And also, I found this guy who was both a therapist and an airline pilot who strictly deals with people's fear of flying. That's all he deals with. And uh, I took his course that he has, and I and I also talked to him personally, and it really, really helped remarkably. Um, I'll give him a plug because it really it was a huge thing. His program is called SOAR, S O A R, which is an acronym for something. I don't seminars on anxiety relief or something like that. I can't remember, but it it really did make a huge difference for me. Um, it doesn't work for everybody, but for me it was great. And when I and I my first flight was flying from uh, JFK to Narita Airport in Japan. That's a long flight. It's 13 hours. Yeah. And after that, like going to California or Florida is like nothing. And I, th- I had the same thought. I got on there. I took my primitive laptop. This was 98. And, you know, my, my girlfriend was with me. And, you know, they kept coming out and giving us nice snacks and wine. And I thought... 
Jesus, this isn't so bad. This is, right. you know, you, you were treated very luxuriously. Of course, this was, you know, it was a business, so they fly you first class, which is very nice. And then, you know, you're there. It's a, you know, you get you get treated. Flying coach is a rough experience nowadays, no doubt about it. But if you are rich enough or happen to be flying for business reasons, it's still quite a pleasant experience to fly. And then you're there. It's sort of like magic. It's amazing. See, that happened to me because I, I flew. Because at the time, Virgin, they stopped running the, the trip. But Virgin it was, was new. This was a few years ago. And they go from LAX to Philly. Well, when you go to Virgin, when you get there, every seat has its own TV. So you'd sit there. And I, I would try to take the red eye. And I would those off for a little bit. I never sleep with them. But it was so relaxing because before you, you sit there and you're just looking around. But here it's like, okay, well, Law and Order's on. I can watch that. Or, hey, there's a sporting event on. And that makes it so much easier. And it, and it's a brand new plane. I mean, when you go to a plane and you look and the stuff looks sort of like crappy like that. Things. Yeah. But, but when you get on something that's brand new, I mean, these planes are two years old and they have actually cool videos about the, the flight attendant directions and all that. And it, you sit there and you go, well, this is pretty good. And because I, I flew late at night, no one flew then. I would always be in my, I would always take the same seat, twelve or thirty, like row eleven or twelve, and get the aisle. And honestly, eighty percent of the time, there was, I always had my own aisle because yeah. no one would fly, and that's what made it good. I, I mean, I know, like coach, we flew, we went to a football game in Arizona. We took Southwest. We paid the extra twelve fifty to get our seat guaranteed because for that it's just like you look around and you go oh god this is going to be awful and it's nothing against the people that fly southwest but it's like they're all just they they don't care like they're the people they're the type of people that if you sit there and say well can me and my girlfriend sit next to each other oh no no you know like it's, yeah. that, it's that type of thing so so the olympics so you did the olympics and now that must have been an amazing experience it was a great experience really really great experience because usually when you i was working for cbs uh and i'm not a huge sports fan but uh, you know, I was in a little studio somewhere, and then the event was off wherever it was, and I would only be looking at a little television screen or reading a script. Whereas in Nagano, you had really the sense of being part of everything, and um, it was an international. There, there were television. There was television coverage from all over the world, so you were kind of thrown together with reporters and others from all over the place, and it was really, really fun and interesting. And plus, I was I had always been fascinated with Japan, but of course, I'd never been there since it's a long train trip. Right. <laughs> uh, so to really see Japan and Nagano, which is kind of like a ski resort, is really it's up in the mountains, and it's not like being in Tokyo. It's a little town, so a lot of it's kind of like old Japan. And to be able to see that, and there's a very famous Buddhist, huge Buddhist temple there um, called the Zenkoji Temple. So to see that all that stuff was great. That was really uh, a great part of it. Now, did you have time to to look around? I mean, cause yeah. So it wasn't you weren't always doing. No, I had I had a couple of days of very light work, and then there was a weekend I think where I hardly worked at all. So it was great, and my and my girlfriend was then with me too. So we got to actually see a lot of things, and it was you know wonderful experience. Now you've also done the Super Bowl, right? Yes, I did a, a Super Bowl when CBS. I did everything that CBS had. So when CBS had the Super Bowls, I did those two. So now would you go to the Super Bowl? No, I'd be sitting okay. in I'd be sitting in a, in a little teeny box in New York. Uh, I, I, there there are some networks who do all their coverage. Uh, in remotes from wherever the Super Bowl is, but at the time CBS didn't do that. So when you're the announcer of the Super Bowl, do you just say it's the? I mean, how? What is the your your job description? Do you say it's welcome to the NBC uh, CBS uh, Super Bowl? I mean, is that what you're saying? That's so. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, there are some things that have to do. I mean, I was never a commentator. I never came in on, uh, you know, being as ignorant as I am about sports. That's a good thing. Um, uh, those kinds of things that you're talking about, uh, bumpers were, you know, the NFL on CBS is sponsored by that kind of stuff. Now, do you do them in advance or do you have to be there at like, do you have to hang out during the games? Like when you were doing that work for the NFL on CBS, was that all pre-recorded? Most of it was, but there would, there would be, uh, what they call interstitial things, um, that would be recorded during the game. And either I would have to come in to the studio or, uh, we lived out in Montauk. My wife and me had a house out in Montauk, and I had a studio uh, that was connected via ISDN lines, which is a way of connecting recording studios to, uh, at the time, the only way. There now are other ways. Um, but I could connect from my studio with any recording studio anywhere in the world in real time. So I could sit in Montauk and actually 
deal with CBS uh, live on the air or with, with a slight delay uh, and do updates and stuff like that from my house. See, that's great. Isn't technology amazing? I mean, it is. Think about it. It's like you sit there and you, you're in Montauk and you could do it anywhere in the world. I mean, But it's vastly changed the business and not all for the better. Why, why, why do you say that? Well, the voiceover business used to be um, a small fraternity of people. Uh, most of whom were very good at it, not all of them, but most of whom were very good at it. And the work was concentrated among those people. It's been democratized to a ridiculous degree now by, by, uh, for a couple of reasons. One reason is the technology has become so inexpensive and so widely available that people all over the country now have these little ISDN studios uh, or send things over the internet. Also, um, in order to save money, uh, the the vast majority of these jobs have become non-union. And people are now able to get into the business because they're not in the unions. Uh, the buyers, that is uh, television networks and advertisers, would rather not pay union wages and residuals. And these new people are willing to work for much lower prices in order to get in and not have residuals and not have health insurance and all these other things, which has uh, effectively destroyed much of the business for other people that were already in it that were depending upon it uh, for their insurance and for uh, retirement and to make a decent living. So for a lot of people, what it's done is it's spread the money out. So there are a lot of people now making thirty, forty thousand dollars at it, uh, or you know, uh, or maybe less than that, but it's still better than they would be making in the town where they were doing what, what they had been doing, and they're kind of their own boss, and they like that. Uh, but it's been bad for. Um, people who really want to make a kind of a lifetime out of it and depend upon it for their family's welfare and insurance and things like that. Now, have you noticed, because you've been in the business for a while, it seems just in the last few years, a lot of more actors have been doing voiceovers. Yes. there. Was, when I, I'm, I got into it long enough ago that uh, kind of so-called legitimate actors rarely did commercials. Um, it was thought that if somebody uh, stooped to that, that their career must be headed towards the garbage can. Um, in the late 70s, um, uh, you remember the movie Apocalypse Now? Yes. Uh, Martin Sheen starred in that movie. And when Francis Coppola was cutting that movie, uh, he was unhappy with the way the movie seemed narratively. So he had John Milius, the great screenwriter, uh, write some uh some um, narrative sort of explanation, sort of voiceover stuff for Martin Sheen to do. And when you see Apocalypse Now, all that voiceover was added as an afterthought. He, okay. he voices over the whole movie. And John Milius wrote that. Anyway, the point of this all is Pepsi saw this and thought that Martin Sheen would be a really great voice to have. So they offered Martin Sheen a lot of money and he became... Uh, I believe the first uh, actor whose career was really, you know, going well, who became a, a voiceover spokesman. Uh, not too long after that, uh, James Earl Jones' uh, voice became associated with various things, mostly CNN. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> the floodgates opened. Yeah, because it's weird because you sit there. But sometimes when you hear a commercial, you sit there and go, "Wait a second. Because I remember I think Demi Moore did Keds or something like that. And then you know, you know, Ed Byrne he did. Uh, Pepsi, but you hear a voice and Dennis Larry does the trucks. But yeah, it's weird because it seems like now it's like I always it's all feel over. Like, and I'm, I'm like, you guys have your money. Let other people get it. Well, not only that, uh, very often it lends more cachet to the agency than it does to the product. In other words, like for example, John Hamm does Mercedes now. Um, I think the vast majority of people listening to that would not be able to tell you unless they knew that it was John Hamm. Uh, not to say that John Hamm doesn't have any quality that's, you know, that's useful or that represents Mercedes well, but there's many situations where uh, I think the agency, it reflects well on the agency that, are, that they were able to get a big actor. Right, because they want, they want to sit there and go, oh, look, we have, and you're right, because I mean, I watch TV and I follow this and my girlfriend watches a lot of TV, but the normal person is not going to, right, is not going to notice John Hamm's voice. You're not going to notice, you know, if you don't watch Mad Men, you might not even know who John Hamm is. And that's true. I think it's the agency would sit there and go, well, we have uh, Sean Penn doing this commercial, or we have this person. And the normal person, you're right, the person who's not a big, you know, into the entertainment world isn't going to pay attention. They're, they're going to be like, well, yeah, that voice sounds familiar. But they don't, I mean, for me, I, I sit there, I'll go crazy. I'll go, damn, who is that? Who is that? And then I'll sit there and finally, when I 
after like 40 minutes of driving myself nuts, I'll just Google it. Who's the voice? Of the <laughs> I sit there, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not giving up. And then it's thing. It, it parallels to a certain extent what's happened with television in general. Uh, it used to be that there was a great kind of a, a, a sea between so-called television actors and, and film actors. And film actors were, uh, you know, you didn't want to be in the cast of people uh, that were uh, television actors. That was a lower kind of a, a status point. Um, that's completely changed. Oh, now, yeah, everybody that does TV, even Woody, when we're going to talk about Woody Allen, even Woody Allen's having a series come out on Netflix. Yeah, though, although, although he's not, he's not been, he's not been particularly uh, encouraging about uh, uh, what he has to say about it. But, <laughs> yeah, but so, so now, how did you end up in the Woody Allen movies? And did you start. What was your first Woody Allen movie you did? A Hannah and Her Sisters. Okay, now, did you have a little part, a big part? I had a small but sort of memorable part. If you remember the movie. Um, he believes that he has a brain tumor. I'm the first doctor that looks at his, his not his X-ray, his whatever it's called, his CAT scan. And uh, yeah. says, uh, there's something here not good. I want you to come in. And he's terrified. So there are three doctors. I'm the first of the three doctors. Uh, the second one is Benno Schmidt, a uh, famous college president. And uh, I think the third one is... Um, I believe the third one is the great Richard Jenkins, my friend, a wonderful okay. actor. Now, were you a Woody Allen fan growing up, or did you like yes, his stuff? Yes, I loved Woody Allen, and uh, I was from a very young age. I loved him, and I and I got to know him a little bit because Tony Roberts, um, who was in that era often his uh, second banana, uh, was a close friend. Tony Roberts' father is a guy called Ken Roberts, who was a, a, a well well known announcer. In the days before voice, the word voiceover artist was was much used. So Ken Roberts was best friends with my father. They both had houses in Fire Island. It was part of this Fire Island crowd. Anyway, Ken's son is Tony Roberts. So Tony Roberts, I always knew growing up, and Tony Roberts uh, collaborated with Woody on a number of movies and shows. I think, I think, I believe, Play It Again, Sam was the first thing that he that Tony did with, with okay. Woody. And I went to see that on Broadway. I was probably 12, maybe 13, something like that. And went backstage and got to meet Woody and got to, you know, and all that stuff, which was really cool. And uh, I was always a big Woody Allen fan. And I was thrilled. And then what happened was uh, I did these, uh, when, when I got out of Yale in 1981, <clears throat> there were these sort of uh, mass auditions that they had for casting directors and agents of the people getting out of the more prestigious drama schools, Juilliard and Carnegie Mellon and uh, Yale and so on. And so this casting director, Juliette Taylor, who has been wonderful for me and is a brilliant, truly brilliant, uh, you know, kind of a model casting director, uh, liked me. And she just called up and said, uh, Woody's doing this film, Hannah and Her Sisters, and uh, would you like to play a... a doctor in it what's that like doing a scene with someone who you're a big fan of i mean is it i mean because you're going in and, and and it's not it's like you could be a fan of an actor and you can be a fan but you're it's it's woody allen i mean there's a, i mean it's woody allen you know the, i mean the guys had more screenplays nominated for an oscar than i think anybody i mean it's an amazing amount like, like 24 screenplays and being a fan what's that like doing a scene with him i mean is it well it's your job um as an actor I mean, you can't help but go, wow, that's, that's Woody Allen. Right. And, and, you know, and, and, uh, but it's kind of your job as an actor um, to look at him as a human being and uh, sort of uh, clear your mind of the fact. So you, 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 know, you kind of allow him to be who he is, but also remember that he's a person with all the things that people have, you know, all the, all the um, foibles and all the humanity that people have. So you kind of get past his fame when you're acting with him and try and just talk to him as you talk to a person. So now, did he did he call them to get you in to come back? Because I just heard he works with the same people he likes to work with. Because you did you did a bunch of them. You said you did seven. Yeah, yeah. He called. Uh, you know, Juliet. The way it works usually is um, the in most. Although there have been a couple of exceptions to this, notable ones, the Coen Brothers having called me, uh, not going through a casting director or an agent. Um, but uh, generally, the way it works is they'll tell a casting director. Uh, you know, they're interested in you and then the casting director calls your agent. But in this instance, when I was just so young and just starting, uh, I guess he told Juliet or Juliet maybe said to him, oh, here's a young guy and he, I like him. He's good. Uh, you want to see him? You know, it's, it's okay if he plays the, uh, this doctor. And I guess he said yes. And, uh, then I would, then, uh, there was a bunch right in a row and I, I would sometimes see him around New York. He would be driving around in his, he, he didn't drive, but he was driven around in this station wagon, this big <laughs> station wagon. <laughs> I had a driver 
and he'd be sitting in the front with his droopy uh, hat on. You know, he used to wear this kind of like Gilligan hat. Right. You know, so I guess people wouldn't uh, bother him. And uh, I would once in a while, you know, see him run into him. And I went to see him play at. Uh, he used to play in those days at a place called Michael's Pub. I don't. I think now he doesn't play there. I think he now plays at the Carlisle, if I'm not wrong. But he used to play there, and I went to see him. And I don't know. He. I. I at the time, I didn't realize that how hard it is to make him laugh. He's very, very serious. Uh, so I used to try and say things to make him laugh. And once in a while, I would succeed. So uh, either. I don't know. He admired my my uh, my grit for trying to make him laugh or something. So he for a while he you know he would he would call frequently and and also he liked he occasionally he would have me improvise things. There's another scene called um, another another film called Another Woman, where he he said to me, okay, this scene is about Gina Rollins, but Gina Rollins hears a patient talking to a psychiatrist through through this uh, air grating in her apartment, so. I want you to be this patient, and I have this other guy, this other actor's going to be the psychiatrist. Just, just make something up. So, <laughs> I made up this whole, this whole thing about how I'm, I'm straight, but I can't get this guy Gilles out of my mind that I met on fire on this whole story, and, and, it, and the whole thing wound up in the film. This whole long, so cool. protracted thing. Yeah. Now, how did the Coen Brothers movie come up? Because you got very good reviews for that, and that was uh, that, that was one of the Coen. I've saw that movie. I've seen all the Coen Brothers movies, and that was one that. It wasn't seen as much as the other ones, I think, but it was so good. How did that come about? Because you said it was without an agent and without a casting director. How did the Coen brothers know of you, and how did they find you, and then how did they get in touch with you? Yeah, it was a, that's a interesting, uh, strange uh, story. Um, <clears throat> it was at a time in my life when things were very rough. Um, as I told you, I had been the voice of CBS Sports, and then... Shortly after my children were born, which was 2002, uh, CBS Sports had a change. They changed all their graphics. They changed everything. And they got rid of me, among other things. And things had changed vastly in the voiceover world. They stopped wanting dramatic-sounding voices. They wanted real-sounding voices, which I haven't sounded like a real person since I'm like seven years old. So uh, I was kind of out in the cold, and I had been a visible enough player in that world that things were, it, was, it got very, very cold for me. Uh, and at the, tam- at the same time, I had big responsibilities. I had kids, I had children with autism, I was married, I had, you know, all that stuff. I had two houses. So things got very, very scary. And we had some savings, but, you know, I wasn't making much money at all. I had gone for, I was making, I had been making four or $500,000 a year to then making like $10,000 a year, $12,000 a year. Right. This went on for a while. And I went through the savings that we had. So I was talking to this friend of mine and he said, look, let me ask you something. He said, you have about a year's worth of money left, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, look, if money weren't an issue, what would you really like? What would you really like to do? I said, well, I think I'd really like to go back to acting and writing like I did when I was, you know, when I was a kid. He said, so why don't you try? I mean, you got nothing to lose. You got a, a year, you're going to have to change things anyway, so try. So I did, to no great uh, reception initially. And then one day, I'm sitting at home with my wife in Montauk, and the phone rings, and she gets the phone. And she says, do you know a Joel Cohen, which sounds like an accountant to me. Right. <laughs> and I said, what is it? Is it Joel Cohen of Joel and Ethan Cohen? Joel yes. We'll get on the phone. Well, I knew them a little bit because I had gone to school with Fran McDormand, Joel's wife, Frances McDormand, the great actress, and John Turturro and a couple of other people. And I knew John Goodman and some other people kind of part of their retinue, you know. But uh, And I had auditioned for Barton Fink maybe 20 years before that uh, for the role of uh, the movie executive, um, which I didn't get. Played by Michael Lerner. Right, brilliantly played by Michael Lerner, nominated for an Oscar for it. Wonderful performance, but I didn't get it. But uh, uh, Ethan told me I placed. I came in second. (laughs) So uh, they remembered me. So um, anyway, Joel got on the phone. He said, hi, how are you you doing? He said, listen, we've written this movie. It's called A Serious Man. There's a part in this movie. It's kind of, it's it's an unusual part. He's kind of a linchpin in the movie. It's not a super huge part, but he's very important in the movie. Uh, it's this character called Cy Abelman. Are you interested? 
I was like, uh, let me get my book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm interested. So he sent it to me and I read it and I thought it was a great movie and it's a fantastic part. And then he said, yeah, so come to New York and we'll talk about it. So I came to New York. I read the part for them and they said, terrific. You know, we really would like you to do it. They said, but here's the thing. We're doing three movies kind of simultaneously, well, in a row. And we don't know how, when we're going to get to each one. One of them was Burn After Reading. And Burn After Reading is a very star-studded movie. It had Brad Pitt right. and, and George Clooney and uh, Tilda Swinton. I can't remember who else in it. So they had to do that uh, based on the availability of these big stars. So they said, we want, to, we want to do this movie with you. Meanwhile, I'm running out of money. So a year passes. I think, oh, shit. This is, gonna, this is one of these things that's never going to happen. you know. And like a couple months more. And finally, finally... Uh, somebody calls and says, okay, we, we're going ahead with this movie. So this was like, I don't know, eight years ago, something like that now. So uh, I went to Minneapolis where the movie was made and made it and had a great, great time, great experience making it. And I was very, very surprised um, because their movies are so well orchestrated and so well put together. I was surprised at the degree of freedom that they give actors. I'd like you to stay very very close to what they've written. They don't like you to, to alter the words. But in terms of performance, they like actors that really uh, uh, have something else to to uh, to contribute. So they gave me a lot of room with Cy Abelman, which I really enjoyed. And I loved you know playing that part. And I became fast friends uh, uh, with Michael Stuhlbarg, who played Larry in that, and, and other people in it, and had a wonderful time. And then went home, and of course it was a year, almost a year until that movie came out, as is normal with most right. features. And it, though though it had a smaller audience, it was very well received. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, and uh, I was shortlisted for an Oscar, for an Oscar nomination, although I didn't get it, but I was put on the list. And then I, I did win an uh, Independent Spirit Award for it and other things. So that brought a great deal of attention to me, uh, much to my uh relief and 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 uh gratitude and i ha really haven't stopped since then but that was the movie that kind of brought me back and you did an episode of curb your enthusiasm yes i uh for some reason um larry decided to do the second half of the last season in new york uh so he brought it to new york and there was a casting director a different casting director a wonderful casting director um who always uh, liked me and uh had me go in, and I didn't. I was a big fan of that show. I used to watch it with my love wife it. every week. It. But I didn't realize that that's all improvised. Right. I just didn't know that. <laughs> and you get this little piece of paper that's the size of a Chinese fortune cookie fortune. It's like a little teeny thing, and it says, uh, "It's mine." Said, "You know, you are you are Larry's psychiatrist, and you've charged him, but you didn't have a session in the office. You just met him somewhere. That's all it says." So everything was up to me to, you know, figure out. And so, you know, for the first couple of takes, it was like, well, um, I, uh, I'm really sorry that I had to charge you because, uh, you know, but, uh, you do it enough. Ideas start to come out. And I had this idea of making him a name dropping psychiatrist. I thought showbiz psychiatrist is a good idea. So I, I, I just had, I just got this idea. I said, uh, you know, what's, who, who's, a, who's a sort of a middling rock guitarist? And I thought, well, Mark Farner from Grand Funk Road. So I thought, okay. So I said to him, uh, you know, you, you remind me of a, your dilemma is like that of a patient. I don't want to, I don't want to tell you who he is, but. Uh, <laughs> I remember the episode. Yeah, yeah. He, he did play uh, guitar for the band <laughs> Grand Funk Railroad. Well, I just told you who it is. You can just look it up in the album. His name is Mark Farner. The thing about Mark Farner, and, he, and when I said this, Larry started breaking up. He started laughing. And he said, go on, go on. Like, don't stop. But he was laughing. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, it was a big victory to make him laugh. And, uh, you know, it was it was terrific. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And, I, and he was terrific to me. Uh, and I got to be friendly with Jeff Garland because of that. And um, uh, that also introduced me to the people that worked on that show, writers and producers for that show, uh, also work with Sasha Baron Cohen. So I wound up doing this picture with Sasha Baron Cohen called The Dictator because of those people. Which is another very interesting experience. See, that's just yeah, it's amazing how it how it just it people work with people and then you get, you know, 
then they say, oh, use this person. Now, you also, you played yourself in the crazy ones. Yes. Now, how, do, I mean, because it's, because I always do my research and you go and I do the, I, I look at Wikipedia and I do the IMDb and then I'm looking and I go, and it says like, and he played Fred Melamed on crazy ones. I'm thinking, okay, so he played himself. How did that happen? I mean, what was that all about? Well, uh, as I'm sure you know, um, that was a that was a uh, the late great Robin Williams' last kind of um, project. Um, he played the head of an ad agency, right? Uh, and s- the writer, uh, I believe it was Dean Lurie. I can't remember that. Who if, I think it was Dean Lurie who wrote that episode, the first episode that I was in. Um, wanted to have him have a sort of a contretemps. Well, actually, not him, but uh, another character on the show. Um, played by Hamish Linklater, have a sort of a contretemps with a with a voiceover guy, and the truth of that is that they 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 wanted William Shatner. I don't know. There, there there are these tapes circulating. You may have heard them of William Shatner being directed by some bonehead who is first of all doesn't understand that in Canada they pronounce certain words differently than we do here, and keeps telling him how to pronounce these words, and also gives him rather. Uh, interesting, thoughtless direction about how to do things. And William Shatner does not let the guy get away with it. He says, well, let me just just help me out here. Let me hear how you would do it. Let me hear right. how you want me to do it. And, and, <laughs> and the guy does it. And then William Shatner does it just like the guy did it. And the guy realizes that he made a terrible mistake, but it's too late. He can, he can, William Shatner rubs his face in this totally. So they wanted William Shatner to do something like this, but either he wouldn't do it or they wouldn't meet his price. So I don't know, whatever it was. So uh, they had seen, somebody had seen uh, a picture that I did, a wonderful picture that I'm very fond of uh, called In a World that a brilliant woman actress and director and writer called Lake Bell wrote, where I played um, a kind of a big guy in the voiceover world. And uh, they knew that I could do that, you know, uh, believably. So they called me in and had me do it, and that was it. Well, you've worked with a lot of great actors. You worked on House of Lies, and Don Cheadle is just amazing. I mean, now that was a recurring role for you. Yes, that was a great role that I that I thoroughly enjoyed. And John, as you said, Don Cheadle is a great, wonderful actor and a lovely guy, too. And uh, that whole experience uh, doing that show, I really, really enjoyed. That was a... Uh, another instance of me playing a rather uh, squirrely bad parent, a role that I, <laughs> a role that seems to, a role that se- I seem to be uh, credible in, um, and uh, uh, you know thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed doing that. That was great. That was uh, uh, this year. I, this this past year has been particularly rich. I've had a lot of wonderful roles um, in television and movies, both, and, and some some in the present that are also, you know, I'm particularly excited about coming out. What's, because uh, we have about eight, six, seven minutes left, what are some of the roles you're very excited about coming out? Well, I have a couple, two movies that I'm that I'm very excited that I did both uh, relatively recently. One uh, is a film called Bone Tomahawk, okay, which is a western slash kind of horror picture, very interesting with a very fine cast. Kurt Russell is the lead. Wow. Richard Jenkins, um, uh, really, really good, interesting uh, kind of mashup of genres. Matthew Fox is in it. Sean Young, very good. It's actor. Great cast, yeah. Uh, and and I had a I enjoyed that particularly because I played a kind of a village idiot Festus. Remember Festus from Gunsmoke? That kind of a character where which I rarely get to play. And it was a western, and you know there's just not that many westerns anymore. Right. So that was really uh, great. And then I did another picture, a second picture with the Coen Brothers, called Hail Caesar. Uh, also very interesting, uh, com- fu- fun comedy. Uh, where all my scenes were with George Clooney and uh, uh, a bunch of really wonderful actors that I thoroughly, thoroughly liked. It's funny you're in that because I used to always see on LA casting they're looking for extras for yeah. Hell Caesar. You'd always see a, a posting, Hell Caesar, a Coen Brothers. And I'm like, wow, the Coen Brothers. Uh, it's just, you don't think the Coen Brothers are going to be in LA casting. You know what I mean? It's- yeah, no, this one is all about LA. It's all about Hollywood in the 50s. And um, I don't want to spoil it for people, but the sort of conceit of the picture is. Remember how was the horrible? There was the sort of ho- horrible uh, McCarthyist sort of communist under every under every rock scare. Right. Well, this this supposes that that's sort of true. There's a bunch of writers uh, who are um, uh, very lefty, maybe all the way to lefty socialists or past that communists, uh, who feel that Hollywood is not treating the common man very well. 
So uh, they have a plan, which I don't want to reveal to you, but the plan involves kidnapping a very well-known movie star okay. and convincing him uh, to get Hollywood to see things from the point of view of the working stiff. So I play one of these uh, one of these communist writers that, in fact, does this. So that I'm also very excited to come out. I think that will not come out probably until uh, 2016, that picture. I don't know when exactly, but it will be a while. And then in television, uh, I had a great uh, role that I enjoyed thoroughly on a new show called Casual, which will be on Hulu, which is a show uh, – Executive produced and directed, two episodes directed by Jason Reitman, the, the terrific Jason Reitman, who you may know from Up in the Air and Juno and other movies. Um, and that uh, stars um, some also terrific actors that are already good friends of mine. Michaela Watkins, who wrote and produced um, Bench that you mentioned. Okay. Well, it's a uh, great show. I, that show cracked me up. She wrote and produced that, but she's also an actress, a wonderful actress. I was in, in this Lake Bell picture called In a World with Her. She played my daughter in that. She also plays my daughter in this. And another terrific young actor, Tommy Dewey, who, uh, who people may remember uh, from Mindy Project or other things, um, they play brother and sister. And their parents in that, uh, their, their mother and father, their rather, rather absent mother and father, at least as far as uh, good parenting is concerned, uh, are played um, – by, I play their father, and um, Franny. Oh God, Franny! I can't remember her last name. Um, Frances, fantastic actress. Um, Frances on Six Feet Under. She played the mother on Six Feet Under. Oh uh, yeah, I. I I'm Paul. Conroy. Okay, 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 that's it. Franny Conroy plays their mother. Um, uh, I, I apologize, Franny, if you're listening. You're great and genius and also a wonderful person. Anyway, um, I can't remember anything, <laughs> anything, anybody's name, including my own. Um, but anyway, Franny Conroy and I played their parents on that and I enjoyed that thoroughly. And then the really exciting news is I have a new show, uh, the deal for which I believe is just being made, just being finalized today, uh, which uh, I'm a series regular on and a big part of, um, which is a show uh, all about Maria Bamford. I don't know if you're familiar hey, with her. Hey, my, fr- my friend actually, my friend Jordan directed her uh, comedy show in her house. Oh, yeah. My friend Jordan Brady directed that. Yeah. So this is a show all about, a rather autobiographical show, all about Maria Bamford and her struggles and her success and what her life's like, uh, in which I play her sort of closest best friend, confidant, uh, father, confessor, psychiatrist slash manager, um, uh, Bruce Smith. Um, so the two of us. Bruce. Bruce has been on the show. Oh, has he? Yeah, I okay. know Bruce. Yeah. So it's a somewhat. Uh, uh, You're uh, taller than Bruce. <laughs> yeah, there are other differences too, but a, a somewhat comically uh, reimagined Bruce Smith. Um, but uh, that's a that's a show that I'm super super excited about and. Uh, uh, Mitchell Hurwitz, who you may know from um, Arrested Development, right. is the creator of this. What is that going to be on? Do you know? I don't know when it's going to be on. We're just we're just, do you know just, what network is, or is it? Yeah. Gonna... Oh yeah, yeah. It, it's on Netflix. Okay, great. But, I love Netflix. I love I love their series. I just, they're so good. Yeah, this is one of their you know new um, sort of marquee big series coming up. So I'm very excited about that. It's been a busy beer year for you since you moved out here. Super year. And it's been beautiful Super weather. Year. East Coast got killed this year. They got slammed by the snow. And the last few years they've been getting slammed. So you got to be happy. Yes, and it's been great. I've been on God so many things this year. Besides, besides the shows we've already talked about, besides Benched, five episodes of Benched, uh, New Girl, another wonderful show, full show with Patrick Stewart, a comedy with Patrick Stewart um, called Blunt Talk, Blunt Talk uh, a show called Married, a terrific show called Married, just wonderful things, which I'm uh, very, very glad to have been a part of. It's been great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. It was good to talk to you. Oh, it's and, my uh, pleasure. I was checking all, and I always sit there. Anyone works for Woody Allen, I'm like, oh my God, Woody Allen. Because my, my, you're in Crimes and Misdemeanors. And my favorite Woody Allen line in every movie is when he goes, a strange man defecated on my sister. It's my <laughs> favorite line from any Woody Allen movie. I don't know why. It's just a cracks me up. When his sister goes, or his friend goes, his wife goes, why? It's just one of my favorite scenes. Uh, now, do you tweet? I don't. I'm on Facebook, though. Okay, so you're on Facebook, and it's Fred Melamed. And then go to his IMDb people and check out his work. He's got a ton of work. And rent the movies. Rent Simple Man. And uh, go check back and watch that. And uh, yeah, so check him out. And uh, also, people, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 
as of today, 381 episodes up. So you're not going to listen to all of them, but listen to some of them. There, there's some great guests. Email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. I always get back to you. If you go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio, it's also the same. It's Cooper Talk, one word. And my new website, stopthesalt.com. As you know, I got out of the hospital three years ago with my heart condition. Well, my card I just said I'm going to live forever. And I changed my diet. So I wrote this a low sodium cookbook. It's uh, easy recipes. No pictures to get you intimidated. There's a key in the front. There's no, all, not all those ingredients because people get upset when they sit there and go, I don't have this spice. I don't have cumin. So buy that. It's 120 recipes and you can go get it. Uh, buy from my website. I make more money and I'll autograph it. Or you can also get it on Amazon or Barnes Noble. So that's about it, people. So yeah, please go to get that book because you want to be healthy. You want to live long because you know none of us are getting any uh, younger as we do it. So anyway, I'm going to thank my guest, Fred Melamed. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend.